Luke chapter 5. I'm going to start reading it about verse 33. Listen to the word of the Lord. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment, for then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts, a new, puts new wine into old wineskins, for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. This is the word of the Lord. So the question that the, or that the disciples around, not Jesus' disciples, but the other disciples, have for Jesus and his group is, why don't you do what we do? Why don't you do it the way we do it? And what's his answer? You can't fit what I'm doing into the categories and practices of Judaism. You can't fit the understandings of God I'm bringing into the practices the way you've always practiced it. The idea is when God's doing something fresh, when God's breathing on his people, there requires new practices, new categories, new cultural expressions to rightly carry what's being given. It's you know, typically been stated that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing in the same ways, expecting different results. When God brings a different understanding or a new understanding, or maybe the better way to put it is an old understanding that's been lost, then we have to change the wineskin of how we live to make space for what God is now revealing. And in history, God continuously is attempting to wake his people up to who he is and what his gospel is and who is Jesus and how does the kingdom life work. And Paul said that there's a mystery that, he, that God revealed to Paul about who Jesus is for the sake of the nations that was kept hidden in times past for generations. But now that God's revealed it to Paul, Paul's out there expressing this truth. And who had the biggest problem with Paul? Jewish believers. Jewish believers. Paul even had to rebuke Peter because Peter didn't have space in the wineskin of his Judaism for God pouring out his spirit on Gentiles without them becoming culturally Jewish. The cultural package of Judaism was too inflexible to handle the gospel that God had revealed to Paul. And if you try to pour it in, what happens? You lose both. The gospel poured into that package starts to rip and tear the cultural expression, divide the community, frustrate, and then moving in dishonor instead of honor. So what's required when we have new wine being poured out as new wineskins? Now, if the gospel, if the gospel is so good 
that we're in perpetual upgrade from the time we receive it until the time we end our lives, then what that means is we're in perpetual outpouring of new wine and that must require perpetual refreshing of wineskins of our heart and mind and attitudes. There's something really powerful about having a childlike faith. Children can come into a foreign culture. Anyone who's a missionary who's had little kids on the mission field knows this. Their kids are going to pick up the language and the culture three times as fast as the parents. You know why? They got fresh wineskins. They don't have to unlearn. They're just learning for the first time everything. And this attitude, this kind of childlike sense of ignorance, this is a good ignorance. We don't know enough. We haven't been trained out of biblical thinking yet when we have the posture of a child. There's something so powerful. I could have you turn there. I'm, I'm, I'm considering whether I will or not. Yeah, why don't we do that? Let's, let's flip over to Acts chapter 2 because we're talking about new wine and Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, is the ultimate new wine. Holy Spirit, help me today. I'm actually intimidated to teach this stuff. So would you help me? Acts chapter 2. Then Peter stepped forward, verse 14. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other, and, uh, 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Linda's not drunk. She's worshiping. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. Interesting logic. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Who? And your sons and daughters, who? Will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Who? Young and old. Male and female. In those days I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, high and low, men and women alike. And they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the last days, says Joel, Peter quoting Joel, in the last days, God will pour out his, God will do something new. And it's so, he, he has to clarify what's new about it. The new, what's new about it is, you're going to have to get a new wineskin for this. Amen. Because in the last days, Jesus will pour out his Holy Spirit on the whole church. Men and women, young and old, there are no distinctions no socioeconomic gradations, no cultural distinctions. God's going to pour out his Holy Spirit on the whole people of God. And this is new wine. And this is new wine that caused the church, even in the book of Acts, to struggle to know how to create a wineskin to contain it, to carry it. And this is new wine 
Whereas in the Old Testament, you'd have, a, you'd have several prophets, you'd have a king anointed to lead, you'd have a judge anointed to deliver. Moses says in Numbers chapter 9, when the Spirit's poured out on 70 helpers to help him administrate, and a couple of them aren't at the meeting, and they start prophesying even though they're not at the meeting. The Spirit comes on them too, right? And then some people come to Moses and they say, this is, this is out of order. And Moses says, whoa, hold on here. Are you jealous for me? I wish that the Lord would pour out his Spirit on all God's people and that they would all prophesy well that's an interesting thing because that is what Moses was wishing was exactly what God was wanting and what in fact he is doing now in this time in which we live but if he's pouring out new wine if he's pouring out the Holy Spirit if something new is happening in Jesus that's never happened before then we have to structure things differently otherwise what? What is a wineskin? What is new wine? How does this work? I'm not going to do a show of hands, but back in Kentucky, I used to make wine. I don't even drink, just so we're clear. I don't even drink. Don't, I don't even touch alcohol, so just calm down if you're upset. But back in Kentucky, I used to make wine. And what it does is the yeast eats the sugar, and one of the things that happens as a byproduct is it releases alcohol, and it releases some gases. It's fizzy. If you leave it completely uncovered, it'll eventually become vinegar. But some people, when they try to put it in a glass container, because glass doesn't budge, they have to put a balloon on top so the balloon will kind of inflate and be the the give. But in the ancient world, when they would make new wine, they would put it in leather, fresh leather, new leather, because leather that's fresh is still skins. It's still flexible. New wine, unlike old, old wine is not fermented, it's not fizzy. It's finished with its process. It's done changing, it's done becoming. It is, it is already what it will always be. It's no longer changing. And it's high quality and it's good. There's nothing wrong with old wine. But if you want new wine, you have to have a container that can handle the fermentation, the violence of it. If you put it in the wrong container the container will burst. When I was a little kid, we used to make two-liter bombs, which are highly illegal, and now everyone's kind of freaking out about safety in this time of generation. Not that that's bad, but like when I was growing up, we didn't wear pads or helmets either. But we used to put a two-liter with some tinfoil and some hydrochloric acid and put the lid on tight and put it under a five-gallon bucket and watch that sucker blow 30 or 40 feet in the air, and we just thought it was hilarious fun. (laughs) Especially when you put it under the bucket, you can't see how close you are to the the explosion blowing up, right? Just good, clean fun. And then some idiots would go ahead and put it in people's mailboxes. Not good. Not good at all. Don't do that. You did not hear me endorsing to do that. No one go out and do that. It's completely unsafe and illegal and stupid. However, that's the power. A similar kind of chemical process releasing gases. And if you have the wrong kind of container, if you put that in a glass container, I wouldn't want to stand nearby. But at the end of the process, you've got a shredded, a shredded two-liter bottle. You've got no more chemicals, no more, everything's blown up. And Jesus is saying, if you try to put this new stuff God is doing in our time in the old packaging that, we've, that has always worked up to now, the packaging that at one point was fresh, the packaging that, that was arranged around the previous move of God, when, when Moses was raised up, God was doing something special and he organized the people in such a way. But if you continue to try to structure yourself the way that you were structured around the new wine of what Moses brought, it won't be able to contain the new wine of what Jesus brings. 
Every time in human history that God pours out his Holy Spirit afresh, he brings new understandings of old truths. And the new understandings, eventually we start to see this can't work with how we're doing things. You get the Protestant Reformation, you have Martin Luther reading in his scripture and seeing this doesn't work with how we do things. Why are we praying for dead people to get out of purgatory, which doesn't exist? Why are we telling people that if they give enough money, Uncle Jerry will get out of hell? Why are you calling me father and why am I not allowed to marry? Where's that in the Bible? There's so many things that when he would, why, you know, and so then the Anabaptists, slow down. So Luther, he wasn't trying to blow up the church. You know what ended up happening is the new wine blew it up all by itself. Once the understanding got into the masses, people said, then why are we doing this? We pray for revival, and then when it comes, we're shocked that things have to change. We pray for the Holy Spirit, and God doesn't anoint programs, by the way. He anoints people. So he sends the people we prayed for, and they try to blow up our churches. And in the New Testament, you should we go there? Go to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Keep our respect on. It's really annoying to me that we have arranged our churches around sort of American governmental structures, thinking that it won't stop the anointing from flowing. And we've ignored what the New Testament actually teaches as to how to organize and structure a congregation. And then we're shocked that we can't sustain an outpouring. I'm so nervous that I'm having trouble finding Ephesians, and I usually know where it is like in three... Is this Bible bulletproof? (laughs) Ephesians chapter 4. Jesus has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That's what the scriptures say. When he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice it says he ascended. This clearly means he also descended to our world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Notice he's referring to people in this context. 1 Corinthians 12 is referring to gifts of the Spirit poured out on the whole body. Not talking about people, but talking about spiritual gifts that people operate in. Romans 12 is talking more about uh, God-ordained gifts that come through sort of your genetic makeup. 1 Corinthians 12 are gifts that come upon you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that empower you for things. Romans 12 are things that are built into your DNA that when the Holy Spirit comes on you become activated. But Ephesians 4, he's talking about Christ seems to have split his own anointing into five pieces And given these anointings as people to the church. All right, let's keep reading. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Now, you'll notice in America, we organize our church like this. We have a single elder governance structure. That's what it's called if you study this at seminary. 
single elder, meaning there is a pastor. We also have an elder board, which don't shepherd the flock. They vote on stuff. They're called the council. I'm just talking about what an American wineskin is for churches. There's There's a pastor... And a council. The church votes on things by democratic majority rule. We've already departed from scripture at that point for voting on things, just not something you see in the New Testament. We elect our officials and we hire our pastors. In the New Testament, Jesus handpicks apostles who handpick elders. Whereas deacons, the church selects. If you need scripture and verse for all these, I can give you those. But we, we call our senior leader pastor. All right, let's just read the text. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work. Well, that's interesting because we view our leader's job as to do the work while we passively receive. And their work is to care for us and make sure our needs are met. Isn't that different? Lead and feed, pastor. That's different. That's different than your Bible. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do the work and to build up the church, the body of Christ, And this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ, which most of us don't believe we'll ever get there. It's like a throwaway verse. Might as well not even be in the Bible. I burn for this. If I believed that verse wasn't going to happen, I would quit. I'm not kidding you. I was toying with quitting a couple years back because I didn't think that such things would happen. Is it possible? Is it possible for every believer to come to maturity? Is it possible for everyone to walk in their anointing? Is it possible to be complete in Christ, sold out, surrendered, not in sin, not stuck, not in process, not delivered from death, by death from sin, but delivered by Jesus into the destiny for which I was? Is it possible? And I had seen so much bad stuff that I was just like, I asked a few prayer warriors to pray for me. I said, I'm going to the Lord to get a specific answer about a specific thing, and I need this answer. Pray for me. I sat down on my couch. I was talking to the Lord. He gave me Ephesians 4.13. And he said, it will happen. So take heart. What? It will happen that all the believers will grow to such a place that when we stand next to Jesus, you go, whoa, you look like Jesus. You look like, y'all look like Jesus. And then we will no longer be immature. Verse 14, we will no longer be immature like little children. We won't be tossed and blown. See, that's, there's, Scripture tells us not to be childish, but to be childlike. Selah. Then we will no longer be immature like little children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We won't be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. 
In other words, to try to get us to follow them instead of connecting us to Jesus. The fivefold is here to connect people to Jesus, to grow us up into the image of Jesus. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head. We won't have Jesus functionally as the head unless we actually honor this fivefold structure that he's given to us. And many of us, this is like foreign language. Five what? Five what? Apostles and prophets, aren't they all dead? You know? Like a big portion of the church doesn't even believe the gifts are operational today, much less apostles. Aren't apostles the guys who wrote the Bible? Who do you think you are? Well, if they are, if, 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 okay. If there's 22 apostles listed in your New Testament, and there are, even a woman, Junius, in Romans 16, and Priscilla, uh-oh, snap. <laughs> then it must not be what we thought it was. Like, we're, we're already out of time. This is hilarious to me. That was your introduction to this theme we're going to be on in a while, for a while now. Who said that? <laughs> it's her fault, okay? Just put it on record. It's Gloria. I, I, I'll say some concluding remarks on some of this. We have, at our church, not organized around Ephesians. We've not organized around 1 Corinthians 12. We've not organized around God's anointings. We have been stuck in a cultural wineskin that actually makes revival almost impossible to sustain. If you do what's natural for American churches, you end up with the pastoral anointing or the administrative anointing at the helm of the church. It's the apostles and... If I can quick run down... Apostles burn to pioneer new ground for the kingdom. They burn to pioneer new ground for the kingdom. They burn to see the kingdom come to earth. They burn for this and nothing else. The heart of the apostle is like Romans 15, 20, where Paul says, I want to preach Christ where, I ha- where he hasn't been preached, lest I have to build on another man's foundation. Sorry, guys, that burns in my heart so bad I have wrestled with being here. I have to grow and I have to go and I have to equip and I have to to send and I have to impart. Either I'm going or you're going. Somebody's going. We've got to go. We've got to plant. We've got to grow. We've got to build. We've got to change. It's all about what's God saying. It's all eyes heavenward. The prophet, what's God saying? What's God's presence doing? How do we release the word of the Lord? How do we hear from God? Prophets don't have a clock. They have a portal to heaven constantly communicating meanings from the other side. A prophet's got a lot going on, so hug a prophet this afternoon. You got a lot going on. But the apostles and prophets burn so much for how God feels and what God says and what's heaven saying, and they're so this way that without them, if you just have the other anointings in charge, the concerns of people will dominate and the revival will be stopped. The evangelist burns, okay, if the apostles' eyes are on the future, build, plant, grow, network leaders, establish, father, release, equip, send, trust. The apostle wants to see you and your calling. Guys, this is my heart. I am just now finally, at this many years in, able to admit I have an apostolic orientation. But I've been like, oh, I don't want to claim that, that sounds like I'm arrogant. 
I'm not saying I can write your Bible. I'm saying I'm a pioneer. I'm saying I burn for the future. I'm saying I'm more concerned with what's God saying than how you feel as much as I love you. I'd rather split a church than disobey Jesus. That's apostolic and prophetic. But the pastoral anointing will never split a church rather than, like, they, they don't, that's, their, their orientation is so nurture, connect. Are you in a home group? I love you. No one loves you more like than I love you. Call me at three in the morning. I'm here. I'm there for you. You love pastors because they love you, and that's their anointing. They're there to connect. If you have an apostle and a prophet in charge, and there's no pastors anywhere in the church functioning, you're going to have a huge back door of the church where people come in and they're like, the presence is awesome, but I don't really know anybody. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And it's the pastors who are constantly coming to the apostles saying, you ought to preach on family and marriage because family matters, marriage matters, connections matter. When new people come in, they don't even feel connected. Are you in a home group? Home groups, pastors in home groups, I'm just telling you right now. Just like the evangelists burn for the lost. I remember the story about Chris Overstreet. His buddies who, who lived in the home with Chris Overstreet, who carries a strong evangelistic anointing, they, they never could get up early enough to get up before Chris. Every time they ever woke up, he was already up weeping for the lost. Every morning. They got up at six. He was up weeping, butt in the air, nose to the ground. And then all day long, what did he do? Share Jesus with people. And an evangelist is is amazing. We need the evangelist, guys. Like, please don't hear me saying, y'all are weird, the apostles are the best. It's not about, there's no, no. It's not about who's more valuable in the kingdom. The person who has the gift of helps, the person who has the gift of tongues is every bit as valuable. The issue is not value. The issue is not about who's more important. The issue is how do you arrange the body for ultimate flow of God's kingdom from heaven to earth. That's the issue. That's the issue. We need everybody functioning in your calling. See, and the thing about, if I, I'm like, this is, I'm, such, I'm in such a hurry because of the clock that I'm like, <laughs> relax, says Tammy. And then the, like some of the children who are like, no, don't relax, just shut it down. Apostolic, vision, eyes on the future, prophet, what's God saying? What's God saying? What's God saying? What do I destiny I see on each person? Evangelist, what about the lost? What about the lost? What, how, how is it that we're even in this room? Look, three more cars went by with people going to hell. Like right now, I just saw a truck, it was white. Ah! Why are we even here? What's the point of even gathering? Let's just get them saved and equip them to get people saved. Who, who needs the church? She's just so slow. You will quench the spirit telling the, the evangelist to slow down. Don't ever tell them to slow down. Tell them to speed up. Every time you're ever with an evangelist, tell them to speed up. Encourage him. Don't ever discourage someone by trying to pour water on their anointing or squeeze them in the wrong mold. Ah, we'll have to come back to this because I want to talk about honoring people's anointing so that what they carry gets released into you because the whole church is meant to be apostolic. The whole church is meant to be prophetic. The whole church is meant to be evangelistic. The whole church is meant to be pastoral, loving people and connecting. The pastoral is an incredible, incredible, essential gift without which, and, and see, Bobby Acoff was strongly anointed as a pastor. So when, so when he left our church, it left a big gap of the pastoral anointing. And God is able to raise up more people. Uh, Brian and Becky Zook on the team are highly pastoral. I never told you that yet, but you are. (laughs) Did you know you are? Both of you, you carry a pastoral anointing. Tammy carries a strong teaching anointing. Carl carries a strong evangelistic anointing. And so on and so forth. 
Now, it doesn't mean you have to carry a five-fold anointing to be an elder in a church. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that Jesus has a different model than American churches have. And it's no wonder that it doesn't work, that we're not getting heaven's results when we don't actually honor how God's structured his church. If you let an administrator be in charge, they'll create a system and then they'll have to squeeze everyone into the system. If you put an apostle in charge, they will, see, an administrator will make a blueprint and then build the project. An apostle will put grass and then let people walk for a couple of years until we see where the paths are and then pave the paths that people walked. I'm so much more interested in you doing what you were created to do. And if you're waiting for me to tell you the vision, fit you into my system, keep waiting. It's never going to happen. My vision is to connect you into Abba because I know that when you are intimate with Abba, your spirit comes alive and your gifts wake up. That when, when the whole church falls in love and encounters it, see, this is why I burn for revival and almost nothing else. I burn to bring down the presence of God. I burn to see you connected so much with Jesus. I don't give a crap about the programs of the church. Don't care. We can shut them down. We can start them up. We can shut everything down and do nothing and see what, what, what pressure levels go, ah, oh, until you can't handle it anymore. Then we'll build that instead because that's where the anointing is. Why would we have to work with human guilt to keep some programs that were, that were built in a, in a season of previous new wine that are no, there's no longer wine there? Now we have to use guilt and obligation and duty to get you to populate programs that Jesus didn't make you to... I'd rather, I'd rather shut it all down, no sidewalks, just yard... Let you fall in love with Jesus, get intimate with Abba, filled with Holy Ghost, and then see what passions rise to where you can't handle that this isn't being taken care of. You'll start to complain to me. If, you're a pa- if you have a pastoral anointing, you'll complain that I don't visit and call and nurture and hug enough. That's probably an indication that's what you're supposed to be doing. We're over time. Some of us care. We got kids in the kids' church thing, too. We got kids in the kids' church. Let me, let me pray. I got more Sundays, all right? I got more Sundays I can do this. I was already planning on doing this for at least four sermons. Tam's going to preach on it, too, because she has a teaching anointing. Because I have the anointing I have, some of you are going to be unsatisfied with my sermons. If you have a teaching anointing, you're going to be like, what is going on? He doesn't define his terms. Why are his notes and quotes and PowerPoints? If you have a prophetic anointing, you'll be like, I heard the Lord say the three things and I saw an angel walk through the room during your sermon. (laughs) Right, Rusty? (laughs) If you have an evangelistic anointing, you're like mad at me that I don't do altar calls and lead souls every every stinking week in a prayer of salvation. But if we can learn to honor who God actually made us instead of need other people to line up with our anointing, then we're going to start to see something sustainable and healthy. If I can stop trying to get everyone to be like I'm called to be and learn to honor who they are created to be, there's something incredibly powerful that can begin to happen. Enough said. Let's pray. Go ahead and stand. This is, by the way, just an introduction to a topic. I thought I was just going to talk about like wineskins and nothing else today.
Holy Spirit, I invite you to activate. In Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, I invite you to activate in us freedom to release the old wineskins. In Jesus' name, would you activate in us hunger for truth stronger than a sentimental attachment to what we used to do? And it's not about replacing it with the new thing. It's about a life of constant change. Holy Spirit, we'll never be able to have sustainable revival without a life of constant, constant changing and adapting to what you're breathing on now. So Holy Spirit, we give up the Mennonite wineskin in Jesus' name. We give up the American church wineskin in Jesus' name. We give up this leadership expectation that the lead pastor is called the pastor, that the lead elder, or whatever you want to call me, is called the pastor, and he functions with the anointing of a pastor. And we welcome Jesus, who you've given us, who's around us in the pews. We welcome God, and we ask that you would activate us in intimacy with you that would release each of us to be ourselves. And to stop judging other people by what we're called to, but to learn to honor the differences instead of resent them. And God, I also release, I pray for the release of a a teaching anointing on this house for this next season, especially the teaching anointing for this next season so that yokes can be broken off, so that understanding can happen, so that we will see the beauty of your design. Because I don't believe that we're going to care enough to change our lives unless we see the beauty of what it is that we're not getting. So Holy Spirit, love on your people. You love your church, God, and you love the world, and you love sound doctrine, and you love the dreams you have, and you love to speak to us. You love these gifts because you love your people. And I'm asking for more grace, God. Sustainable revival that does not end after three weeks, but that it leads to planted churches, that it leads to transformed marriages, that it leads to connected, healed saints, that it leads to lost people coming into an encounter with the kingdom at the workplace where there's sawdust on the ground, but there's tears mixed with it because Holy Spirit is touching hearts. We say more. We say we want your way. We say, ah, I'm done with fear of man. We say bring your kingdom. We love you, God. Amen. If you have questions, feel free to talk to me.